Let's go ahead. So Priscilla gave me a card that said, that had a, a collect of great, about grace written upon it. And so I wanted to begin with that because I loved this collect. I don't know where it came from. Um, I'm sure I could find out, but I, it, I just look at, for me, it came from Priscilla. Um, so, so let me begin with this. It probably, um, I'll read it because it's probably would be difficult for us all to read together, but let's begin with this prayer. O oh God, whose grace and mercy flow like an endless river from your great being, help us now to place ourselves in the path of rushing love and compassion that our spirits may be renewed. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I hope your spirits are renewed by this material. Um, mine certainly has been. So where we have had a fantastic array of different speakers, and this is one, one of the great things about this hour. It helps us to get to know each other because we've got different teachers. And where I last left you, we were talking about Peter Martyr Vermigli, who was an Italian reformer who put us in touch as Anglicans because he has a hand in the Book of Common Prayer, in the creation of it, he is a reformer who puts us in touch with the Italian Reformation movement that I spoke about so much last year. Because for me, if you are bored with the Reformation and you think you know it, which I thought in my arrogance that I did, because of course I learned about all these when I was at Wheaton as an undergrad and I know the Reformation, and I kind of got tired with it. And then when I rediscovered it in closet Protestants in Italy, all of a sudden I realized, maybe we've got something here. Uh, maybe I have something in my Protestant heritage that I have neglected. And so Peter Martyr Vermigli has, is one of those Italian reformers who is also part of our Anglican tradition. So he has kind of brought the story north in some of the stuff that I've been talking about. He's challenged by the Oxford Catholics whom he ousted, and he's getting shouted down. I mean, the, the intensity of conflict. Remember when Dr. Adam Wood was talking about R Richard Hooker, who's trying to lay the intellectual basis for Anglicanism, and these Puritans are throwing stuff at him as he does so. Same with him. He's trying to lay these Protestant foundations, and he's being yelled at, but nevertheless, he persists in his role in England. And one of the things I wanted to point out about this figure is that in George Hunsinger's book, an old professor of mine, not that he's old, but long ago, um, when I was younger, he created this book called The Eucharist and Ecumenism. And in it, George Hunsinger said that this is one of the most fascinating images for what happens at this altar. When an iron is placed in the fire, it looks a lot different. Is it still iron? Or is it fire? <laughs> it's an interesting philosophical question, right? I thought iron was like tough and hard, and I, this is not. This is more like fire, but it's not one, it's sort of in that intermediate state. And George Hunsinger said that we've had these Eucharistic debates that have ripped the communions apart, Catholic and Protestant. And he said this iron in the fire analogy is really brilliant and might actually give us some degree of unity as to the mystery of what goes on here. Not only in the Eucharist, which God infuses, but it stays bread, just like fire infuses the iron, but it stays iron, but in you and I. The Holy Spirit infuses us, and yet we stay ourselves. Isn't that brilliant? It comes from Peter Martyr Vermigli. And yet... I have heard Orthodox Christians, capital O, say, you know, our tradition, we're really awesome because we didn't get lost in those debates. We have this awesome iron the fire thing. And I'm like, I think I've heard that before from one of the reformers in my own Anglican tradition. So just one of the wonderful things that he has to offer us, this reformer. And what's interesting, not only does he participate in the creation of this Anglican prayer book that we are shaped by, but when he is challenged by somebody else, the Puritan John Hooper, who says that those 
vestments that you have are popish rags, he says, no, the Eucharist is special, and we can adorn ourselves in these garments while we celebrate it. So he is both in that middle way resisting the Protestants, the hyper-Protestants, but also resisting Catholicism. He's creating that space that we reside here in, in 2017. That experiment was tried and it was tested and that is what I shared with you. And then we talked about how when his wife died, Reginald Pohl, an old Italian reformer who turned on the Reformation and ended up being part of the persecution under Queen Mary of Protestants, he took the bones of Peter Martyr's wife, because he was gone, but you could still get his wife's bones, put them in a dung heap, and then we shared that Queen Elizabeth, her act was to say, get the bones of Peter Martyr from Migley's wife and mix them with the bones of that wonderful abbess, St. Frideswid, and blend them together. And that was our image for all souls. So that's what I shared with you, that those two saints, the Catholic abbess and the wife of the reformer, mingled together so that you could never extricate them again. An image of all souls. That's what I suggested with you, because again, to remind us, you can see what you'll be glad that I don't do the graphic design for our church. Um, and, and Brad does, okay, and Angela. So, but nevertheless, okay, we've got, we're high church and we're evangelical. We bring those things together. And, and I also want to say that we are um, academic and um, applicable, and maybe another way to put it. Some of you come up to me after certain catechesis and say, that was the best one. It was amazing. Thank you for that. Um, and then others of you come up to me after other ones and say, that was the best one. And I think that that's part of the beauty of it. Just like we're high church and evangelical, sometimes we might toggle to the academic side. And then we need to be corrected to the applicable side. Sometimes we might be too applicable. Remember, we've got to do the hard background work as well. We're both. And one of the ways of loving one another, it's, I mean, you, I heard it put beautifully. It's not that you were chosen for this congregation, but we were chosen for you to be your brothers and sisters. The people around you were chosen by God for you to learn to love. I mean, that's the way I need to hear it. I look at you and say, okay, these are the people um, that God is calling me to love and that I'm probably going to offend <laughs> and are going to need to learn to love me. So bringing the, the sides of us together, that's the way that we will stay unified, okay? And I love this because to mention the importance of application is a very Lutheran thing to do. Luther was an existential theologian. He said, it has to apply to your life. Only experience makes a theologian. It's a very medieval, ancient Christian thing to say. You have to have an encounter with the Holy Spirit. It can't just be find this guy ideas. It has to be real life experience. So that's where we left off. We've had some amazing sessions. Everybody who has spoken has somehow managed to accomplish the the wild task that uh, we asked them to accomplish. That is, cover the Old Testament in a week. Roy did it. Cover the New Testament. <laughs> Roy did it. I don't, I mean, not, uh, I'm sorry, not Roy. It's right here. Dan did that beautifully. I listened to it online, and it was, I, and I said, I don't, I mean, how did you pull that off? But you really covered the major texts. And in the same way, how Mark kicked us off. So we're moving along, and, and then we had Adam with Augustine, and now we have two weeks to talk about Luther. So if you are to pick up, the, and you'll notice we're kind of sort of, we're going historical for this first session. We're sort of following the, the progress of history or regress, however you want to see it. And then next semester in the spring, we'll be focusing on practical details, following the template of Paul Zoggers, Grace and Practice, our book. There has been so much done in regard to Luther this year. Endless books have been in process for about a decade to hit the shelves now. And so we have all of these fantastic new visual tools that we can employ if you get these books. The, this comes from the, this, it's this S chart of Luther's life. And so if we zoom here, we have the year 1300. You have a plague in Europe. Jan Hus is executed as a heretic. 
the beginning. Luther saw him as his predecessor. And then you have the birth of Luther in the 1470s, and then, then his life begins. And so we have this epochal change. And it's really instructive to look at this and might also be instructive for you to think about your own life. What would your S chart look like? Where have been the places where God has spoken grace into your life? That doesn't have to be navel-gazing introspection. That can be a healthy degree of self-reflection. So we can look at Luther, but also think about the moments that grace has burst into where we are. But of course, for this session, we've got to focus on him. And as we move along here, you see this loop around. Luther begins to study theology. He's an Augustinian monk in the tradition that Adam had spoken about. So he is, not only does he love Augustine, he actually is. The reason that, confusingly enough, Luther is sometimes referred to as a friar and sometimes as a monk is because Augustinians were the one order that sort of sometimes had both. He um, the friars are the Franciscans, right? And then the Benedictines are the monks. But the Augustinians were that amphibious middle ground. And so he is reading Augustine. He loves Augustine. He's devoted to Augustine and the sense of grace that we talked about. And so one of the things that we walked out of last week with was Adam's suggestion to us that this Augustinian heritage is going to leave a very complicated legacy for this Augustinian monk. And the the furnace of his psyche where these events occur is a result of seeing those things play out that Adam gave us a, a foretaste of in his focus as well as with his students on Augustine. So just to give you a point out a few more things here, he's appointed a professor at Wittenberg University, which is pretty much not a very impressive school. Okay, this is a not there's it's not on them. It will be on the map, but it's not on the map yet. So. There's no reason we really should have been talking about him. There he starts his career just after 1510, and then things begin to go on. And by the time we get to 1520, he's excommunicated. So a lot happens in this period. And when you go to the ex if and did anyone go to Minneapolis, by the way? Um, I went to the, the, there was an incredible exhibition in L.A. There was also one in New York. Um, these are extra, all of the stuff connected to the Reformation, you can walk through it and these incredible catalogs that were produced from it from where I got some of these images. So these two massive volumes that came out of this extraordinary Minneapolis exhibition to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, you walked into it under this sort of cave here of one of Lucas Cronick's prints of the Bible. And in this massive two-volume study with all of the best scholars giving their inputs, it concludes in this way. Brad Gregory. Luther's stand concludes. Okay, this is the last word of these two volumes. Luther's stand created the skepticism he wanted to avoid. Where to stand now? Wherever. The great Brad Gregory, a Reformation historian, wrote The Unintended Reformation, a huge book that revived this, what was an old view it had been nuanced, and people had seen the continuity of the Protestants with the Middle Ages, but Brad Gregory revived a Hegelian older understanding that you have this great decisive break in the Reformation that creates the modern world, but he did it in service to his own Catholic faith. Sort of pins the blame on Martin Luther. So why are we doing this if he's right, is my question. <laughs> what are we bothering with? Isn't Luther the problem? It is clear that Brad Gregory thinks as much. <laughs> Let's take that seriously. I would modify that statement. The Christian divisions that resulted from Luther's stand because of the power threats that his experience with God resulted in created the skepticism he wanted to avoid. Maybe it's more complicated. The Christian disunity that resulted from his stand on grace created the skepticism he wanted to avoid. I mean, he, that's how I would suggest it, but nevertheless, Brad Gregory has issued a challenge to us. Is Luther really the problem? And then we look at Eleanor Stump, whom Adam introduced us to, that incredible Aquinas scholar from St. Louis. So it is possible, she says, 
for Aquinas' account of the atonement to accommodate something like Luther's ideas. So not only is Luther the problem, but really his insights, according to Eleanor Stump, are compatible with this medieval understanding, with Thomas Aquinas, the greatest Catholic mind there ever was. Okay, and we can absorb him as Anglicans. We've talked about that before, but for our purposes now, Eleanor Stump is saying, hey, you can bring these, you can splice these two things together. Luther's ideas are compatible. Or as she puts it, Aquinas' theory of justification. This is Luther's great insight. The article by which the church, it's Luther's slogan, his bumper sticker that would have been on his horse. <laughs> justification is the article by which the church stands or falls. Hugely important, and she suggests that Aquinas' theory of justification is compatible with the thoughts expressed in Luther's famous line, simul justus et peccator, we are righteous and sinful at once. This is exciting, but at the same time perhaps makes us nervous. Well, if Aquinas had it all along, then, well, I mean, is this just one big error that we need to correct? A huge challenge. And I think that Adam laid that out for us, and if we're going to be um, truthful to, to the challenge he set for us, we've got we to struggle with that. So here's one way of struggling with it. I want to ask you if you resonate with this statement, okay? In vain, O Lord, dost thou command, if thou thyself givest not what thou commandest. So that's the statement that I'd like to analyze. In vain, O Lord, do you command me to do anything if you don't also give me the ability to perform it. And as you can see here, I've simply reminded us that that is a direct quote from Augustine. O Lord, command what you will and give what you command. The most famous line in the Confessions when Pelagius read it, he threw it across the room. To, no, I can do it myself to an extent. A little help from God. Why are you so, hey, why do you have such a pessimistic view of yourself, Augustine, that you need God to do everything through you? So this is exciting, isn't it? So I just want, again, I throw it out there. Um, do you resonate with that statement in your Christian life in one way or another? I think it's, in some senses, the essence of, of the passages that Dan shared with us. Yes, we got some thumbs up. We could, it's, this is, okay, all right, good. I know, I know, it's like... I just wanted to hear a little bit to make sure that, I'm, that, that we're on the same board in this regard. I don't tend to hear any objections in regard to this deeply Augustinian statement because Augustine is such a huge part of our tradition. Okay, so everyone's okay. This is your chance to object. All right? All right, you'll see where I'm going. Another statement, okay? You can see I've got strange numbers on these statements. You'll see why in a moment. Okay? The grace of Jesus Christ, the efficient beginning of good, of every kind whatsoever is necessary for every good work. Without it, not only nothing is done, but nothing can be done. Deeply Augustinian, grace-centered, New Testament-ish statement. <laughs> God has to do it through you. I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. Very interesting. Chance for an objection. I... I resonate with it. I hope you do as well. Another one. Faith, faith is the first grace and the fountain of all others. Faith is the first grace and the fountain of all others. Interesting statement. You see where I'm going. I agree with these. I assent to them. My heart leaps at this and says, this is what I need in my life. And just to throw in another one, the reading of sacred scripture is for everybody. Does anybody object to that statement? Okay. All right. Well, there they are all together. All the statements that I just issued to you, and they were all condemned by Pope Clement XI in the papal document, Unigenitus, in the context of French Jansenist reform that happened and to quash that reform, that Blaise Pascal was defending, saying, this is good for the Catholic Church. 
but it was seen as so dangerously, recklessly Protestant, these ideas that I just issued to you, that Pope Clement XI said, we destined, we by this our constitution, and those are the things that he just listed, okay, destined to be in effect forever, declare, condemn, and reprobate all and each of these prepositions as false, captious, ill-sounding, offensive to pious ears, scandalous, pernicious, rash, injurious to the church and her practice. He's still going. <laughs> Seditious, impious, blasphemous, suspected of heresy. Watch the buildup. Abetting heretics, near akin to heresy, and, well, finally, heretical. <laughs> I... He, this happened. This is not going to show up in an RCIA class. And, and I don't say it because I don't love my Catholic brothers and sisters, the communion in which I was baptized and confirmed, but it also occurred. And it seems to be pretty authoritative when he says, destined forever to be so. And so in our ecumenical age, this is where I want to say, Dr. Gregory, I've met him a couple times. He, I might even call him a friend. That it's both-sided. The way that we blasted each other. Not, and that is the space that the secular world began to fill with reason that was going to fix everything, and we know how that worked out. So the mess that we have placed ourselves in because of the stuff that we read about in Augustine that was not permitted, and this is not my, so basically what happened is in our Augustine Benedict omelet that we talked about, you just have the removal of an ingredient that thankfully the Catholic Church has not been consistent about because we all know the Catholic Church constantly focuses on grace. Thank goodness. But nevertheless, they're bound, we might suggest, by this statement of one of their popes who's trying to push out these Protestants from the kingdom of France. Not my ideas, but the ideas of Leszek Kolakowski, the great University of Chicago intellectual historian. There were powerful reasons, he says, why the Roman church needed in order to keep its might to de-Augustinize itself. These are the wounds that at the 500th anniversary we need to, I think, talk about and be honest about and also not um, be overly triumphant about the Protestant point of view because for goodness sakes, we have forgotten grace just as often. Go ahead. Oh, sorry, Tom. Yeah, please. That's a really perceptive insight. It's like, um, it, or it reminds me of one of Pascal's famous lines, right? The heart knows its reasons that reason does not know. It's, it's, there's this, uh, these are the, the Holy Spirit works without necessarily needing our calculations. Ah, yes. And he blows where he wills. Um, and I, I just wonder if in the face of our intransigence in our uh, misrepresentations of each other that he has been obstructed pretty severely um, because of the way we have done so, such a wonderful job of, of hating one another within the body of Christ. Um, I'm glad you pointed that out. And, and I, I just, um, I'd say we still need Luther today. <laughs> we still need Luther today because his ideas, his thoughts, his breakthrough can be as challenging to the structures of power today as it was in the 16th century. And what I wanted to do, and again, um, I think, you know, we are sufficiently self-critical as Anglicans. I hope we know that we are a mess as well. I mean, if we want to play headline games, I'm sure we, could, we would have just as much awful stuff to dredge forth from, from our own inter-Nicene debates, okay? But nevertheless, because we're self-critical, I think we can sometimes say that there's something special here as well. George Herbert, one of our great Caroline divines under I mean, the, when the, the church is fighting for this middle ground, continuing Peter Martyr Vermigli's struggle against the Puritans on the one side and against Catholicism on the other. <laughs> but this is from his poem, The British Church. 
But, dearest mother, speaking of the Anglican communion, what those, that is, Catholics and Protestants and Puritans, miss, the mean thy praise and glory is, and long may be. Blessed be God, whose love it was to double moat thee with his grace. <laughs> double moat. On one side, you have a hyper-Protestant um, Puritanism. We're going to fix it all. Just strip yourself of every trapping. So almost be naked. Just no accoutrements at all. That is a sort of law that you need grace to fix. And on the other side, Catholic errors that he would claim are such. And grace is the answer to them. Double-moted with grace. That is his calling out of this gift of this communion. And I think that the way that this communion, fraught as it is, and we know that all churches are fraught right now. A lot of my dear friends who converted to Catholicism are at war with their own church right now. And I don't say that, I don't relish it. I just say that there is no safe place necessarily. <laughs> the safe place is with Jesus and with God and with the Holy Spirit. And the church is in, in agony and struggle frequently. But in this particular communion of ours, a space has been made, perhaps, to be especially honest about the conflict that Christianity has undergone. This is one of the gifts of the Anglican communion. It might be this is a great place from which to repent, <laughs> from which to say, ah, why did we have to do that? And not necessarily have to say, this tradition had it right all along. A great place from which to repent. Finding a mean between papacy and presbytery, as T.S. Eliot put it. And the reason Luther is important in this regard is because those Lutheran ideas were massaged into the early Anglican documents. And we'll talk a little bit more about him right now. Go ahead. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, that is a as a hugely important point. We we can't we do not really we can't have too much swagger in this regard. Our Catechus Emeritus line in this regard was, "Hey, if the Catholic Church was founded upon Peter's failure, right? Um, so." Same with us, in a sense. We're founded on the failure of Henry VIII. And I, I don't know if I'd go there exactly, because I think that we're, we're founded. I mean, Christ does indeed. I think we're part of that church that, that Christ is founding. I certainly think that. I don't think we start with Henry VIII. Um, it's the mess that leads us in that direction. And a couple of things to say about that is, one, um, he had really every right to get a divorce. There are a lot of popes that gave divorces for a lot less reason than that. Um, and he thought that his marriage was not sufficiently based in scripture because there was a dispensation given for him to marry someone who is sort of could be understood as a relative and he's thinking oh no I'm clearly offending God it's not he's I mean I'm not defending his I'm, uh, his um, impulses necessarily but when you understand the rationale behind it you can see hence part of this frustration but what's interesting is that we are not Cranmerites we could have been so um, but it's because Thomas Cranmer was the one who was put in charge of creating these formulas. That's how the Lutheran stuff gets in there. And I'm glad we're not Cranmerites or Lutherans. Lutheran, Luther would, is on record by saying, I would not want a church to be called Lutheran. Um, so just a couple of things in that regard. I, I'm not suggesting that we, I, I think that if Anglicanism posits itself as the only answer, we have failed. I would, I would personally suggest that. Um, and I think, again, it's a, play, a vantage point from which to see the mess of Christian disunity. And if that sounds odd, um, read the Old Testament again and see the mess of Israelite disunity and how God worked through that. This is Ephraim Radner's great insight. The church is fragmented, and your theories about making it all okay, we have a whole book, about, a whole first covenant of stories about Judah and Israel war with one another and how God is displeased with them, but nevertheless, he's working through it. Maybe that's the case with 
the divided Christian realities that we build up to the 500th anniversary of some of the worst of those fragments. What I like to do when I'm talking about this in class is I smash a plate. And I, I cut my hand once, so I stopped doing it. Um, <laughs> because what I do is after I smash the plate is I pick up the largest piece and I say, the plate's not. I'll, maybe I'd do it. I wouldn't do it with one of David's pots, but it would really be dramatic um, if I did it that way. Because then you'd be like, oh, because I would be that way. Um, but I pick up one of, one of piece of his pot and say, no, David, don't worry, it's not broken. It's not broken. Look at this huge piece right here. You'd be like, it's broken. That's just a big piece. And at the end of the day, that's what I want to say to my Orthodox friends who say we're the entire church or my Catholic friends who say we're the entire church. I'm like, you're a big piece, but it's broken. Am I saying the Anglican church is the entire church? Of course not. We're broken. So that's one way of thinking about it. Um, one way, and it, you might want to push back and think about that, but Luther is a is, um, huge part of this. Let's um, push forward a little bit here. So if, just for my money, um, if you have the time, the best thing I've ever read or heard on Martin Luther, um, and that goes with everything that has been published this year that I've tried to keep abreast of, is Philip Carey's great courses, used to be known as the Teaching Company, course called Luther, Gospel, Law, and Reformation. You can pick it up through MP3. You can pick it up through, um, through CDs at Wheaton Public Library. Um, it's unbelievable. He is one of the most gifted theological teachers in our time. He's from the great Yale school that produced people like Harold Wasp, but I think he's the greatest teacher to come out of that school, not just researcher. And he uh, understands it, and it's, it's appropriately penitent. That is to say, he's very much is on Luther's side, but he's also like, look, Luther called the Pope the Antichrist. Do you want to do that? And if he hadn't called, he was sort of forced into that corner, right, and had to respond, you're the Antichrist, and the whole system is Antichrist, and that's what led to those breaks, but he was pushed there. Um, it wasn't all his side, and so he, he, he puts you on the hot seat as well as a Protestant, but does such a wonderful job illuminating this. So if you want to, that's where I would recommend, I thought, re listening to that again this summer was absolute, set me up for thinking about um, the Reformation's 500th anniversary. But let me go to some of these, um, again, to someone who suggests, hey, you know, Luther, what, what were you doing? Uh, your stupid stand gave us this horrible modern world we live in. Well... Let's talk about that for a moment. So this is the system of indulgences, okay? And I know you hear this, you're like, oh, here we go. You're going to say how bad it was. And, but let's just, let's unpack it for a moment. So we're looking at this system here, and we're moving up here. We've got Cardinal Albert of Brandenburg, and what he needs to do is borrow money from the Fuggers. That's the name of this famous, very wealthy family who's going to lend money, lots of money, to Albert of Brandenburg, who is then going to pay the pope for the right to be the bishop. But now he's got to pay back that big check. So how's he going to do it? The system of indulgences. He borrows from the bank, the fuggers. He, he, that is given to Albert. And now he, Albert is in the position of having to pay this enormous sum for the right to gain all these benefices because there's a lot of wealth pouring into the church through perhaps in England, right? A sixth of the land is owned by the church and there's a lot of, by monasteries, there's a lot of money pouring in there. You want to be a part of that. And there's a point at which, I mean, when, when King John is not giving the Pope what he wants, the entire kingdom of England is put on interdict. And finally, he yields, and the Pope says, okay, you can receive, interdict means no communion, no sacraments, nothing. Finally, John yields, and the little uh, benefit that he gets is, oh, and also nullify Magna Carta as, a, as an act of gratitude. <laughs> the Pope nullifies that great document um, because King John finally assented. This is the kind of power struggles that we're talking about. And Albert of Brandenburg is in Germany. He's one of the worst offenders in this regard. And so in order to pay back the Pope for this money that is going from Germany to Italy, he has to send out his priests to pay, to claim people, if you pay this amount of money, the famous Tetzel line, a soul from, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. 
And this is, and, and I've heard that said so many times in church history lectures, it's just been this funny thing, but it really was happening. It really was going on at a mass scale in Germany. Eamon Duffy, the great historian, has suggested it wasn't as bad in England. That was his great book, The Stripping of the Altars, that was published 10 years ago. It was different place by place, but in Germany, it was particularly awful. This is going on, and the more money that is collected, the less time individuals have in purgatory, you can pay for your grandfather. There's the famous line of uh, Tetzel gets robbed. All of his money is taken, the stuff that he was collecting to give to Albert of Brandenburg, and then he's cursing the thief who robbed him, and the thief turns around and holds up the indulgence that he purchased from him two miles ago that gets him off the hook for the crime that he just committed and laughs and runs away. It's a great little story there. But this is the, this is the, the cycle that's going on in all of the people and their taxes in addition to the indulgences. You already have an indulgence tax on the money you're making, and then in order to get extra time off of purgatory, you could pay additional. And that's how they're making money to build what? St. <laughs> Peter's Basilica. And we saw last year that the central tomb in St. Peter's Basilica ended up being a protest of the papacy when Michelangelo got Protestant ideas in his head. So that's a whole other story that we talked about last time. And this is what an indulgence would have looked like. This one was issued on June 12, 1517, <laughs> just before the 95 Theses, where one Lutheran, proto-Lutheran, who will one day create them, one Augustinian monk, is looking at the system and isn't wanting to start a new church, isn't wanting to create a new theology. He thinks if we just debate this thing, we're going to realize this is really a stupid system that has nothing to do with the scriptures that I know so well. This is the process that Luther is undergoing. He is the best of Augustinian monks, like Paul was the best of the Pharisees. Luther goes to Rome, and he walks the Scala Sancta. He goes up on his knees, rather. He didn't walk up it. And he gets to the top to um, gain an indulgence for his grandfather. And the famous line that happens, I mean, you don't go to the boiler room. He goes to Rome and he sees all the illegitimate children that the bishops have. He sees that there are many people who don't believe in God at all running this city. And he does this and he says, Was it, who knows whether this is true, is his famous line when he gets to the top of this. But he is trying hard and he is animated by self-hatred, which he thinks he got from the best of medieval theology. He thinks that's where he got it. And he is hating himself, and so he is going on these penitential rounds. And in Wittenberg, where he teaches, this is where that system of indulgences began to take its effect. There were 9,000 paid masses in 1519 in the Wittenberg City Church. 9,000. That would happen, here's a, a chart of what a church at that time, we don't have images of what the Wittenberg church would have looked like before the Lutheran reform. It's a, a, what it would look like. And each of these little side altars, you have to understand, imagine uh, 15 or so Father Martins, right, um, mumbling words in these side aisles because he's been paid, and we'll give some of the money to Albert de Brandenburg, in order to give this mass in honor of this person in perpetuity. So that's what's happening many times a day in this church. He's, there's no sermon. Um, the Eucharist isn't necessarily even consumed by anyone else other than the priest because that only happened pretty much once a year. This is what's going on in Wittenberg. And this is where Luther's insights and questions about this system are emerging. This is a image of what the town would have looked like. Luther's house is here, and the main city church is right there in the middle. And in the midst of all of this, in this system that he's participating so well in, he's very skilled at this system. He has what is called his tumor lebness, the tower experience. He claims that it was in 1519, but it was probably earlier than that. His own people kept asking him, when did this, this eureka moment dawn upon you? And that moment was when he presumably was in this tower and he reads that line in Romans, <laughs> the one who is righteous will live by faith. 
Now, he's read it many times. He knows it well. But what he discovers, discerns, is that this is not an active righteousness by which God judges us, but it is a passive righteousness by which God declares us righteous. This is his insight. Or as Father Martin puts it, he realizes that works are the fruit, not the root. You can't do works in order to gain that positive declaration. The positive declaration comes and the works just naturally flow from, from that like light naturally flows from fire. There's nothing, you, it just, it, it'll just happen. You don't have to work it up. So that's that extraordinary insight. Or as Paul Zoll translates it in our own language, one-way love. No contribution from you. Just it's been done. You are off the hook. The record is cleared. It has been accomplished on your part. And the word that we could also use for that is grace. To summarize that insight, this is what Luther experiences and it gives him the boldness to begin to challenge this system. Because if this happens, who's going to have to, who's going to want to pay for any of this? And if this message gets out, how is Albert going to pay back his loan? Because no one's going to need to, because I just got the jackpot. I just pulled the lever and all the money came out. This is, there, I mean, I'm, I am off the hook. This is incredible. And this is an extraordinary risk, and this is why it causes everyone's threatened and concerned about this, because this is exactly what Paul dealt with when he preached this message. And everyone said, does this mean I can do whatever I want? And he's, he's very, and that's the same Pauline anxiety crops up again, the stuff that he had to deal with, with this rediscovery of this message. When Lewis, C.S. Lewis talks about this era, he says there's so much of a mess in the Reformation, it's like you're having a barroom brawl, and there's a debate that's happening in the middle of it, and everyone on both sides is armed, and the debate, some person says one thing, and half the people move to this side of the room, and then one person says another thing, and half the people move to this side of the room, and people are being killed in the middle of it all. How can you have a debate in those contexts, he said. You needed saintly and mature disputants with unlimited leisure to really unpack the intricacies of what Luther discovered. This is what Luther says in the beginning of his, the literature of the 16th century. I mean, what Lewis says, but he also says, Lewis, that what pa Luther discovered was not <laughs> Lutheran, but Pauline. <laughs> he says, this is a recovery of what's in the New Testament itself. Now, there's a big debate here, because Dr. Wright <laughs> has spent a much of his career wondering whether or not this is an accurate insight, whether or not Luther really understood Paul properly. And had the chance to talk to him about that um, this last week when N.T. Wright was here. And it's interesting that sometimes caricatures of N.T. Wright's thought um, get out. But when you speak to the man himself, he simply said, hey, I'll lock arms with Luther at certain places and not in others. And that's, I hope, where we would be as well. There has been a huge scholarly shift in regard to looking at the Apostle Paul and I think the great benefit of that shift, it's sometimes called the new perspective. Now, if you want to be trendy, it's called the post-new perspective, right? Um, and, and basically what it comes down to is that one of Paul's major concerns, if not the major concerns, is community, not conscience, okay? There's your new perspective in a nutshell. The community of people, Christians and Jews together under Christ, that's what Paul is equally concerned about. And if you follow Luther in that realm, you're going to be in trouble because the early Luther is really good on the Jews, but the late Luther is awful, awful when it comes to the Jews. Do not follow him, <laughs> right? Do not lock arms with him there. Why did he go in that direction? Complicated reasons. There's lots of theories, but it's not good, all right? And so... A, take the new perspective and say, thank goodness these scholars have said, wait, we have had anti-Semitic readings of Romans that we need to get rid of. But, and this is Philip Carey's point, he says, great, thanks, new perspective. But if you were to ask Paul, how are you justified? He would say exactly what Luther would have said, by grace alone, not by works. And so I don't think we need to be bothered by, as long as we understand these new scholarly developments, great, let's not hate Jewish people because if you can take Luther as your reason for doing that, that's bad. He was wrong there. 
But how are you justified? By the things that you've done for God? By how many times you show up in the pews at All Souls Church? By how many ministries you're on? This is horrible for, for volunteering, isn't it? The more, right? Because now people are like, well, I don't have to do it. You don't have to do it. And the best stuff you do will come from not having to do it. <laughs> is that not cheap grace? This is the great line from Gerhard Ferdi. I think as far as I, I hear this thrown around sometimes. I think this may be the first place where this comes out, okay? So Gerhard Ferdi, in this great book, Justification by Faith, A Matter of Life and Death, highly recommend it, okay? People say, is that not, you know, come on, is this cheap grace, Milliner? It's like people are going to, no, it's not cheap grace. It's free. It's worse than cheap grace. It's absolute, you don't do anything for it at all. Nothing. <laughs> because he's done everything. And then Gerhard Ferdi gives us this powerful follow-up, okay? Why are we uncomfortable with this message? Because we always want to hold out something somehow, that little bit of something, and we do it with passion and anxiety that betrays its true source. We want to add a little something to what God has done. And the true source of that desire to add is the old Adam that does not want to lose control. Because, God, I need a little transaction in this relationship of ours because then I have a dog in the hunt. Then I have stake in the game. I, then, I, then I'm involved. And that is the constant process of Christian history. <laughs> Adding, and this Lutheran insight says, no, you have your full paycheck, and God trusts that you'll still show up to work. No employer would be that. Would, who would do that? God, that's who would do it. Because he doesn't work by our economy. And when that insight gets out there, oh, he has Frederick the Wise, his protector, and he would have just been burned at the stake. I mean, this is commonly done. This is what goes on. And yes, Protestants do it too along the road. I'm not saying that's just the Catholic thing. It's all Christian communities, except for the Anabaptists, are pretty dirty in that regard. Okay, that's why we need them around to remind us. But Frederick the Wise protects him. He has a and he basically goes back and forth. And the real moment that you have the first Protestant Catholic split in this divide, where you have the church fighting back and saying you're not allowed to say this, and there's Luther is holding on for a moment. But when he has that debate with Cardinal Cajetan, and Cardinal Cajetan says you can't have that kind of assurance, Luther. And Luther's like, you just robbed me of my tower experience. What do you mean I can't have that kind of assurance? But that is the concern that would ultimately lead to Clement XI saying, this Augustinian grace stuff is dangerous. And it is, folks. <laughs> it's really dangerous. But it might be the just one thing that we need to jumpstart our spiritual lives. <laughs> to go back to that very place. No progress. No. <laughs> it's not progress toward the goal, but the goal progressing toward us again and again and again. Same place where you first came to faith is where God wants us perhaps all the time. Surrender to what he has done for us. We're not done with Luther. We'll hear more from Max about him next week. But as we move toward the 500th anniversary, as Ellen Cherry, a theologian at Princeton Seminary, put it, try this on like a dress. Like she said, I just said, okay, I'm going to, well, for men, try it on like a suit, right? Um, I'm just going to try this on like a dress. Justification by faith alone. Let's see how it works, right? It's all been done. Jesus died for you, and it has fully been accomplished. See what that does in your life. And she said, I tried it on, and it fit wonderfully, and I was lifted up. What if it's all been done? It has. <laughs> Let's keep wrestling with this as we go forward. Thanks a lot. Oh, we got one minute. Any, um, any comments or questions? Yes, please. Tad. Yeah. I hope not, and I think that a really good Catholic response would be, it's not an infallible declaration, popes can err, but I want to say, I want to respect Clement XI, because he does say forever, and just because two papal statements of Marian doctrines are declared infallible doesn't mean you just throw all popes aside. 
Um, so the question of the status of that document um, is a very interesting one. What I would love to see is a Catholic declaration of this was a mistake. But the problem is that the church cannot do that without threatening its control of the development of doctrine. Hugely complex issue. I'd love to hear a really intelligent Catholic response to that. Because um, I don't want to just go throwing accusations, but I also want to say no one, when I read my um, You Should Convert to Catholicism literature, and I've read a lot of it, this never comes up. The de-Augustinization. Anybody else? Um, yes? Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. That's exactly right. Um, so I think it's wonderful. Oh, go ahead. One more. Right. That Lutherans killed them. Yes. Yeah. Uh, in a lot of ways, even though they, they feel more religious freedom because of them. We do. And we also I think there's a chaos that comes without authority that we have suffered from as well, which is why we can hope, perhaps like many people did in the early 16th century, is there some future council that could bring us unity? The Lord has not granted that yet, but those are the kind of hopes. Sarah Coakley, I think the best, certainly the best Anglican theologian out there, maybe one of the best in the English-speaking world, concludes one of her books by saying, we are waiting for the coming great church. And what I simply want to suggest is that grace has to be a part of it. And that's what we can bring to the table if we can rediscover it in our own lives afresh. Thanks a lot, folks.